time for sword play. Alex, a sculpture that's been on display outside the United Nations headquarters since November that some Christians linked to the end times beast in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, is gone. Yeah, you know, the UN had a follow-up statement and said, uh, my bad guys, we jumped the gun a little bit on this one. Uh, we weren't supposed to set up the image until after the next lockdowns. Whoops. See, even the forces of darkness have logistical errors sometimes, you know? Get your act together, Satan. Come on. <laughs> By the way, uh, listener, if you haven't seen this statue, it looks like some kind of uh, tiger, maybe, with wings. Um, rainbow it's tiger. Just, it's goofy looking, but anyway. <laughs> it's a rainbow tiger play. dragon eagle. Yeah. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, we're actually going to do some question and answer. We've had a number of questions come in via text, via email, via Facebook Messenger. Uh, we are grateful for all of our diligent fans, all of our diligent listeners out there to the podcast. And uh, as we've said, if you send in a question... We will answer it live on the air, and so that's what we're going to do in this episode. That's right, and uh, we have some good questions, and as always, sometimes questions are within questions within questions, and so <laughs> we have to unpack some of these, so there's plenty of content, I think, and a lot of things I think we wish we could get to now, but we might have to save for later. But I will start with sort of a disclaimer. Uh, so many of these questions, they're specific to the faith tradition background we associate with as Christians, namely the Churches of Christ. Uh, you, diligent listener, may not know the history of quarrels that this particular branch of Christianity has dealt with over the years or decades, um, but as you may know, sin does have a lingering effect uh, wherever it is found, not just on the individual, but on entire communities, even church communities. And so I don't, I don't think it's usually the questions or topics that divide people, but Really, it's the way people treat each other that divides them. So all that to say, you know, these are excellent questions. I hope our answers can be taken in a spirit of charity and respect. And, you know, I confess, uh, there were times in my life as a believer where uh, I did not uh, act in charity or respect over topics of debate. And so I repent of that. I hope we can all repent of that when that happens. So let's get mm -hmm. to the first question. The first question, and the first couple of questions, really, have to deal with the Holy Spirit. So, Nick, the uh, audience member here wrote, Do you believe we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and that we received it at baptism? And he says, I know some who do not believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in us at all, and they say that the Holy Spirit is nothing but the Word of God, in other words, the Bible. So why don't you talk about that, Nick? So to answer the questions directly, yes and yes, uh, I do believe that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. I do believe that we receive the Holy Spirit at baptism. Both of these are affirmed in the New Testament. And I've, I've recently uh, read a book, been reading a book, called The Trinity in the Stone Campbell Movement by Kelly Carter. It's a fascinating historical exploration of the understanding of the triune God within Churches of Christ. Christian churches and disciples of Christ, uh, from Campbell and Stone onward. One of the key insights of the book for me was that Stone-Campbell movement churches have been Trinitarian, even Orthodox Trinitarian in their beliefs, and yet they've not been overtly Trinitarian. 
choosing deliberately to avoid the language that has developed throughout church history regarding the Trinity. Uh, that is, for example, avoiding words like person or persons, uh, substance or essence, and even the word Trinity, because uh, that language is uh, extra-biblical or, or non-biblical. There was a choice made early on, a choice that Carter says has been damaging to Stone Campbell movement churches, a, a deliberate choice to avoid historic Trinitarian language in an attempt to be intensely biblical. But that choice has crippled us when it comes to our doctrine of God, especially with regards to our doctrine of the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this underdeveloped understanding or recognition of the Holy Spirit has resulted in anemic faith in many of our siblings. With the help the Helper provides, uh, or without the help that the Helper provides, we are essentially attempting to live the Christian life in our own power. And, and no human is capable of this undertaking in and of themselves. Christianity is a supernatural religion. It provides the believer with supernatural help through the Spirit. And also, the Christian faith is thoroughly Trinitarian, God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call on God as Father. God the Son dies in our place on the cross. The Holy Spirit applies the completed work of Christ to our lives, strengthening us, strengthening us with power in the inner being, according to Ephesians 3 and verse 16. And without the presence of the Spirit, we're powerless. Now, I too, uh, listener, I've, I've run into brothers and sisters in Christ who conflate the Bible, uh, that is the Word of God, with the Holy Spirit. And so a number of things I would say in response to uh, my brother, my sister, who holds to that position. First, God the Holy Spirit is a person, not a book. He is a he, not an it. Uh, second, wouldn't such a conflation of the Holy Spirit with the Bible, wouldn't that produce an idol since the Bible now consequently is the third person of the Godhead? Uh, third, conflation of the Spirit with the Word is just poor theology. It confuses the persons of the Son and the Spirit, and it makes for bad Christology and bad pneumatology, uh, bad doctrine of Christ and bad doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Word, uh, the, the Son is the Word, the Spirit is the Helper, and they are distinct uh, without confusion. Uh, fourth, without a doubt, the Spirit inspired the Scriptures. The Scriptures are theonoustos. They're given by God, specifically God the Holy Spirit. However, without the Spirit, these things given by God are folly to the natural person, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. So this makes a, a clear demarcation between the Spirit and the things that are given, that is, words. I had a friend who used to say, the vector of Spirit is words. And I, I think that's right. And it, again, it shows that demarcation between the things given, the words, and the Spirit himself. And then uh, fifth, to say that the Holy Spirit does not dwell in the believer is, uh, as pointed out even in the question itself, it's unbiblical, and it results in not belonging to Christ. Romans 8 and verse 11 uh, tells us that we have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelling within us, and if we don't, then we don't belong to Christ. So this is a, a very serious and uh, grave error to say such things, that we don't have the Spirit uh, within us, and then, again, to conflate uh, Scripture with the Spirit. Um, so I, I've run into it. These are the things that I've uh, typically uh, responded with. Uh, I can say that, um, unfortunately, not everybody was receptive to the response, uh, even though I think it is uh, 
uh, it, it does answer the argument. So uh, that's what I see here, Alex. Alex, what do you think? Do you believe that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and that we receive the Holy Spirit at baptism? Yes. Yeah, I affirm yes and yes. And I have a suspicion that at the heart of this topic lies the desire to be able to explain everything in some mechanical fashion. I think some struggle with understanding the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not because they can't find scriptures, which supports the idea, but because they can't explain how the indwelling actually works. And they don't like that. And so it's tempting then to replace the Spirit with simply the Bible. Uh, Learning and teaching from the Bible, that's familiar. We understand it. We experience that process. We seem like that's something we can point to as objective and self-evident. But when we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's not always understandable. It does have an element of mystery. It does assert somewhat of the unfamiliar. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is real, though. Uh, It does have a subjective element to it, but that doesn't take away from its reality. Uh, Because of this, though, I think some Christians have a fear of the unknown, and they shy away from recognizing the work of the Spirit. And so they just don't call it the work of the Spirit. They reword it as something else. They'll say it in something more palatable. They'll say, uh, that was divine providence. That was an answer to prayer. That was God's working, etc. And those are true, but it would also be true to say that was the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, God did not reveal to us the metaphysical understanding of how the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So that can make us feel uncomfortable. But we can trust by faith that just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters, even brooding, bringing about the creation of heaven and earth in Genesis 1, so too the Holy Spirit broods over us, making a new creation within us, that new spirit, which too began in water in baptism. Now I understand that there are more questions within these questions, which would require a lot more than one podcast episode. Uh, because obviously the other side of this debate, they would have more statements, more questions. But I think some of these highlights that we're hitting is a good start. So here's another question uh, from the audience. It says, some people don't believe in a literal personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they say that the Holy Spirit was only for those alive during the time the Bible was being written. They also say that I'm taking verses about the Holy Spirit out of context. Uh, I'm being the the listener who's writing the the question. Mm-hmm. You want to speak to that, Nick? Yeah. So I I do have a book. It's entitled The Bible Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's by Robert Taylor Jr. And it phrases the question pointedly: uh, Is His, that is the Holy Spirit's, indwelling us personal, actual, literal, and direct, or uh, is it by a medium? The medium would be the Word. Now, Taylor affirms the latter. He affirms the Holy Spirit indwells indirectly through the medium of the Word. One argument he makes for his case is, if all three, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are in us actually, bodily, literally, personally, and directly, then to that extent we are part God and could worship the deity that is in each of us. If not, why not? Right, because it's all caps, so you got to yell it. <clears throat> Uh, So that kind of reasoning is uh, specious. It fails to account for the unity with distinction that exists between the Godhead. 
Jesus prays, you, Father, are in me, and I in you, in John 17, verse 21. If the Father... So there's a couple things. Number one, notice there's distinction within the Godhead there because it's the Son addressing the Father. This is inter-Trinitarian communication. But then also, if the Father is not personally in the Son or the Son personally in the Father, what's the medium of their mutual in-being of one another? I'll wait for an answer. Because none is with none is forthcoming, by the way. Um, if the Son and the Father personally are in one another, then the Father is the Son, and the Son is the Father. And if not, why not? Right? Because that's how you got to ask it, apparently. See, Taylor's Trinitarian theology collapses on itself. If it is demanded that when a person of the Godhead dwelling in another must therefore require that person to become that person of the Godhead, but that's not required. Therefore, the Father remains the Father, and the Son remains the Son. And in the same way, the believer remains human and does not become God, and the Holy Spirit remains God and does not become human. The pot remains a pot, the potter remains the potter, which is something that I doubt Taylor addresses, uh, the nature of the incarnation and its relation to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the believer. When God the Son takes on human nature and becomes flesh, his humanity is not swallowed up by his deity. Maybe he does for Taylor, since for God to take on human nature requires that human nature, therefore, to become God. And there goes the full humanity of Christ. And there goes his ability to die for sins. And there goes the bodily resurrection. And there goes everything else, etc., etc. On it goes. Oops. Now that simply will not do. So just as the eternal son can take on human nature and he retains his humanity, so it is possible for the Holy Spirit to indwell the believer and we retain our humanity and our personhood. Now, this whole view requires a radical reinterpretation of the New Testament to make it work. Now, fortunately... Franklin Camp has written a book doing just that. It's called The Work of the Holy Spirit in Redemption. Camp works diligently to reinterpret all of the various New Testament texts which affirm the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's no small task, by the way, given the sheer volume of texts which clearly teach this doctrine. A, qu a key question concerning those who advocate that the Holy Spirit does not dwell in us personally or actually, but merely indirectly through the Word is this is how you are interpreting all of these passages which refer to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Is that the same way the original audience would have understood them? And I can guarantee you that no one who heard Romans read that first Sunday it showed up in the church in Rome, uh, heard what is for us, Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. Again, they didn't have chapters and verses back then. No one heard that section and thought, oh, Paul means the Holy Spirit will dwell in us through a medium, which has yet to be fully revealed, by the way. No, when they heard, the Spirit of God dwells in you, by the way, it's a plural you, they understood that God, the Holy Spirit, personally dwelt among them. Collect collectively, absolutely, but also individually. And you can see 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, also chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, for examples of both of those, by the way, collective and individual indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, there's the response, both uh, from a Trinitarian perspective, the triune God, the triune nature, so theologically, but also there's your answer uh, scripturally as well uh, for this, uh, or at least hermeneutically, I guess, uh, how we interpret Scripture. So that's what I have to say about that. Alex, uh, you want to toss stuff in here? Yeah, I think that's well said. Uh, I'll add a few more um, notes concerning the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We as Christians, we do become sharers 
in the divine nature. That's Second Peter chapter one verse four. Uh, this is called theosis, and you can go back and listen to our podcast on Second Peter one or our podcast specifically on the topic of theosis. Now that does not mean that we become God, but we come to share in His nature. Uh, to quote the early church fathers, we are like iron put into the fire. Over time, the iron glows the same as the fire to share in its nature, but that does not turn the iron into fire. It's still iron. So it is with the Christian and God. Interesting that the Holy Spirit manifested itself as tongues of fire. Through the Spirit's indwelling, we are thus immersed in that holy fire, the same fire of God's presence that was on Mount Sinai, which Paul tells us uh, we have an advantage over Moses in this respect, because Moses would go onto the mountain, he would come back shiny, and then that would fade and he'd wear a veil. But Paul says, we're not fading, but we're getting shinier until what we are is revealed at the end of our transformation in the resurrection. And you can go back to Second Corinthians chapter 3 to read about that. Historically, the church has always believed in the personhood and godhood of the Holy Spirit. And that is set out more explicitly in the First Council of Constantinople in 381. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer is standard doctrine found in our New Testament and read as such by Christians for almost 2,000 years. Now, the metaphysical understanding of the indwelling, though not revealed, I would you know, offer simply by way of metaphor uh, this. Okay, in the same way that Jesus uh, says that he's the vine, his disciples are the branches, that apart from him they could not bear fruit, that he would prune the branches to grow and bear more fruit, in the midst of that conversation, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. I would say the Holy Spirit can be seen as that life force then, which flows through the branches to encourage growth. That can't be limited to just the apostles of the first century because without life flowing through all the branches continuously, then it dies because it's been cut off. Now, to be clear, I'm not, I'm not saying that our fellow believer who remains confused or even teaches in error about the Holy Spirit has been cut off for having such error. Uh, you know, the motives, the intent, the heart, the attitude of such a person is under God's judgment and jurisdiction, and he will judge accordingly. In fact, I personally believe that the Holy Spirit is still working upon and within all believers to bring them closer to the truth. But whether or not one will continue to resist and grieve the Holy Spirit is yet to be seen, because it's a long process, right? There have to be points in which we change our mind about something because nobody has it all right from the very beginning. We keep learning, we keep expounding, we keep understanding more and more. And that's why we got to be full of more charity and grace towards one another in this process, right? So in light of that, here comes another question. The audience member says, I'm being ridiculed for preaching the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and also excusing those who are in minor errors in their understanding of lighter matters, but live their lives right in obedience when it comes to the weightier matters. And they quote Matthew 23, 23. So, Nick, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I first, brother, I hate that you are going through this. Uh, I agree uh, with Alex uh, and would counsel patience. Uh, it's taken you, I don't know how long, to get where you are in terms of your understanding regarding uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, regarding 
uh, being gracious uh, toward those who uh, have, as they're called here, minor errors, I would take that. I'm assuming what that means is matters of opinion. Um, I could be wrong in uh, interpreting that phrase that way, but I don't know that I am. <laughs> but um, So I, I hate that, that this happens in the church. The, the plea of the Restoration Movement was originally about unity, even in the midst of diversity. Now, I'm afraid that certain of our brethren have become too sectarian to properly entertain such a notion. Many of the lighter matters have been placed into the realm of weightier matters. Non-essentials have been turned into essentials so that those minor errors, again, those matters of opinion, Romans 14, verse 1, those get turned into heresy. And now we become heresy detectors. And uh, to make matters worse... Though God has been so gracious to us, we fail to be gracious to one another. And then I think at a, at a deeper level, that philosophical rationalism within the Stone-Campbell movement uh, is something that we have inherited from our forefathers. And I believe that that has produced a reductionism within the framework of the Restoration Movement that virtually eliminates the supernatural. In other words, and in this case specifically, the Holy Spirit has been reduced to a thing that we can control and that we can manage, namely the Bible. And any notion of the supernatural element of Christianity is, for all intents and purposes, taken away. Because again, we can't control that. Or it's not rational. So... What ends up happening is we argue that God only operates through means. He never operates directly. Satan, likewise, follows suit, and he only operates through means. And by the way, I would ask, well, why does he follow the rules? He's the bad guy. Bad guys don't follow rules. <laughs> but anyway, I would, I would agree that uh, God operates through means, absolutely, but not only through means, especially on behalf of his people. But uh, I may be in the minority position there. I don't think so, though. Uh, at least not practically, right? Um, but I digress. That's that's what I have to say about uh, our our brother's current situation here. Alex, uh, what, what do you have to say? You know, Nick, I don't even think we're really talking about doctrine anymore at this point. At this point, we're talking about people. Uh, people should never be ridiculed for having questions, right? That's never appropriate. When we fail to show any charity or openness to others who hold a different interpretation than us, we reveal two very sad things about our belief system. Uh, first, we reveal that uh, one must have everything perfectly understood or else face condemnation, which is sad because it assumes that we must uh, either view ourselves then as being right in everything already or else stand condemned. And such a notion leaves little room then for correction and learning, since it would also require a confession that we were wrong. The second sad thing is uh, we reveal that since God will not have mercy on those in error, uh, then we would also not ourselves receive mercy if found in doctrinal error on the day of judgment, which is sad because it has a low view of God's mercy upon oneself. The question of uh, lighter matters versus weightier matters, you know, that begs another question, uh, definitely for another podcast, but that is, who gets to decide which matters are lighter or weightier, non-essential or essential, opinion or doctrine? 
and we'll just have to open that can of worms up another time. (laughs) So here's another question. This audience member says, uh, some people say we can't directly sing or pray or talk to Jesus because he is not God. Matthew 28, Acts 7, 1 Timothy 1, 12, Hebrews 12, 2, etc. suggest that we can and should. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, so you will run into this with uh, your Jehovah's Witness friends in particular. Uh, you also get a, a slightly different brand of this in certain circles within Churches of Christ who while admitting Christ is God, will say, yeah, but we still can't pray to him or sing to him or talk to him or anything like that. Um, uh, my, my position has always been, look, there's no jealousy uh, within the Godhead uh, in terms of, well, there's the Father and he's looking at the Son going, well, they're worshiping him. Why are they worshiping me? They are zealous, certainly, and jealous for their glory collectively. Uh but to say that there's jealousy within the Trinity of one member versus the other, I think is just, uh, it's, it's erroneous. Listen, if there are Christians claiming that Jesus is not God, they're not Christians. Christ is God. Romans 9 and verse 5 says as much. Christ was God above all, blessed forever. Uh, amen. Christ is Emmanuel, and that means God with us. So... Anyone claiming anything else has a false Christ, and uh, it is not the Christ that Peter knew. It is not the Christ that John knew. It is not the Christ that any of the other apostles knew. Uh, we just got done doing a whole series on First uh, John, and John is adamant that the person and nature of Christ is central to a proper Christian walk and even a, a proper Christian doctrine. Uh, so I've, I've got a whole sermon, which I typically preach early on when I arrive at a new congregation, on the deity of the Son, just to make sure we're on the same page, all right? Christ is God. If not, we've got work to do. Now, having said that, <clears throat> and to come squarely to our uh, fellowship, there are uh, there is a, a portion of our brotherhood who believe that Christ is God, but they say that we don't worship him. Uh, rather, we worship the Father through the Son. And specifically, this has to do with prayer. Prayers are offered to the Father in Jesus' name. Now, we've, we've addressed uh, questions pertaining to this in past episodes of the podcast. 2 Thessalonians 2 was uh, one place where we did that, and there's others, I believe, as I recall. The root of this difference dates back to at least the 80s and early 90s, when Wayne Jackson and Gary Workman corresponded uh, between, uh, between one another, and they brought this issue to a head. Uh, and uh, the evidence, though, is overwhelmingly in favor of worshiping Christ as God, which is uh, the position that Wayne Jackson took at the time. God as God is worthy of worship, and therefore Christ is the proper object of worship in as much as he is God. Now, you do have prayers that are peppered throughout the New Testament where no less than, say, the Apostle Paul prays to Jesus. You can see 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 through 13, 2 Thessalonians should be 2, verses 16 and 17. Stephen, as he's a dying in Acts chapter 7 and verse 59, uh, prays to Christ. John, 
prayed to the exalted Christ in Revelation 22 and verse 20. During his earthly ministry, people prayed to Jesus uh, whenever they would come up. <clears throat> Uh, for example, in Matthew 9, verse 27, Matthew 15, verse 22, whenever they would come up and say, <clears throat> have mercy on me, Lord. That was, that was a prayer for mercy from the incarnate Lord. So the exalted Christ, he's worshiped in heaven in Revelation 5, verses uh, 9 through 14. And so that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think we ought to be worshiping Christ as God. Nothing wrong with that at all. So there's a number of responses to this question. Alex, what do you think? Hey, you know, while you were talking, uh, you mentioned uh, someone being erroneous, and uh, I thought of a joke, right? So what's the heretic's favorite pizza? I don't know. Pepperonius. <laughs> <laughs> That's an Alex original. I just made that up. <laughs> uh, so should we pray, worship Jesus? I mean, the case seems self-evident. I haven't ever run into anyone who actually asserts we can't pray to or worship Jesus. I mean, I may have, but the topic never came up, so I don't know if that's what anyone I've met believes or not. <clears throat> uh, again, I think, it, just like when we talk about the personhood, the godhood, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so it is here with praying to Jesus and worshiping him. To deny these things, which have been standard Christian practice for nearly 2,000 years, I mean, what evidence, other than your own private interpretation of Scripture, can you bring to say that the church has had it wrong since the death of the apostles, and now you're restoring the truth? I think we need a little more humility, please. A little more humility. Well, here's the next question, Nick. It's a big one. Okay. <clears throat> um, long one. This audience member says, If God is spirit and his worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth, then why do we only call Sunday morning assemblies worship? Clearly Jesus implied in John 4 that worship will not be the same as it was in the patriarchal or mosaic age. God's presence, his indwelling is within us, therefore we worship him in spirit, which is internal instead of external acts. Why then are some congregations so opposed to that idea and say that we only worship him on Sundays for those two or three hours? How are we only inherently in a state of worship on Sundays when we can be doing the same things on any other days, except, of course, for the breaking of bread, uh, quote, opening worship prayer, and quote, closing worship prayer? Aren't these ideas foreign to the New Testament? Would you like to unravel that a little bit, Nick? Yeah, uh, so it, it is true that we are living sacrifices who daily offer spiritual service to God, without a doubt. Uh, this is Romans 12, by the way. Granted that, I do recognize that there is the assembly, which meets every Lord's Day uh, for corporate worship. Uh, what takes place in the assembly? And what we do Tuesday mornings, Thursday afternoons, Saturday nights, those do have touch points, but they also have differences as well. And I, I think this is uh, demonstrated even in the way the question is asked here uh, with the phrase, except, of course, for the breaking of the bread. So I think it's a, a both and situation that uh, we do have the corporate assembly where the body gathers, but then we're also living sacrifices who worship God throughout the week um, and even even do that in a corporate way throughout the week as well. So uh, that, that's what I see and what I would say in response to that. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think um, even with the breaking of bread, right, I actually think we can take the Lord's Supper anytime we gather 
any day of the week. So even there for me, we can do the same things on other days. So first, I think there's the issue of semantics, right? There's nothing wrong with calling our Sunday assemblies or Sunday prayers worship. That's what it is. The terms opening and closing um, prayers, worship prayers, uh, those are pragmatic. It communicates, right? It lets the people know that whatever we have planned for here at this time and in this place is either starting now or ending now. So the wording in and of itself doesn't imply that worship can't still take place at other times, whether individually or corporately. So there's just sort of the semantics issue that I think we can just leave alone. Uh, Second, though, there is the issue of what people believe can be done in and outside of the worship assembly context, which I suspect is probably at the heart of the question. It may not be, but this does spill out into these other issues. For example, uh, instruments in musical worship, uh, women's roles and what they can teach and who they can teach. These two hot-button topics in the Churches of Christ have been handled by some through what I view as a suspicious understanding of what is worship or not worship, and when are Christians gathered in the assembly or not in the assembly. And depending on the answer, then uh, some will say certain rules apply here and don't apply here. Um, since instruments and women's roles were not in the question, though, I won't address them here just because, you know, lots of podcast time. So <laughs> I will I will simply affirm that the individual or corporate body can meet and or worship on any day, anywhere, at any time. The only caveat is that uh, I do think the Lord's Supper must be done in the context of more than, <clears throat> excuse me, of more than just yourself. Oh, and one more caveat, um, caveat, I do believe Sunday is a more special day because it is when the Lord rose from the dead and when the church began at Pentecost, it is his day. So I'm not in saying this, that I'm denying the priority, which Sunday should still hold in our theology and in our assembly. I'm just saying, I think, yeah, you can do any of that on any day, at any time, anywhere. That's what I think. Okay, women's role. I'm making a running list here for <laughs> I know. topics. For <laughs> I know. It's going to take forever. It's going to take Non-essential, forever. Non-essential, essential. Okay. That's right. <laughs> well, moving on. So our audience member here says, For those that sincerely live righteous lives but believe that they were saved when they initially believed and they were baptized later as a form of obedience— I think it's wrong for someone to claim with absolute certainty that those believers are going to hell. Likewise, those who were baptized for the right reasons and live righteous lives, but they believe it's okay to use instruments while singing in worship, I assume is what he's meaning. Is it ours to judge them and say they are doomed? So, Nick, you want to talk to this? In the first place, it is never ours to pass ultimate final judgment on a person. Final judgment, whether for reward or punishment, is reserved exclusively to God, and his judgment is always righteous. And I would divert uh, our attention to Romans 2, verses 5 through 11, uh, to get a firm grasp on that issue. At the same time, to assume that we cannot test the spirits or identify good fruit or bad fruit is simply not true. Uh, and and so how do we how do we get there? Well, uh, the question I like to ask is, well, how do, how do you know what a person is thinking? Jesus gives us the answer, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Matthew twelve thirty four, 
Uh, and so a corrupt heart or a bad tree is going to be evidenced by uh, the things a person is saying or doing. And uh, when we identify a corrupt heart or a bad tree, we call that person to repentance. On the other hand, when we come across, say, an Apollos who speaks the things concerning Jesus and teaches the things concerning Jesus, but needs correction or further explanation of the way of God more accurately, it is our Christian privilege to do just that. And we have an example of this in Scripture in Acts chapter 17, the end of Acts chapter 17, with Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. Now, specific to the issues mentioned, Scripture does teach that there is one baptism. Ephesians 4 verse 5 says it. There is one baptism. Now, taking the whole New Testament teaching on the subject of baptism, I believe that there is a specific mode or form, which is immersion, as well as a specific purpose, which certainly includes obedience to Christ, but also it does go further than mere obedience. One motivated by faith in Christ, though, I believe will be driven to union with Christ in baptism. Uh, one thing I also think about is, uh, is the efficacy of baptism based up upon our complete understanding of it? In other words, does baptism do what it does because we fully understand all that it does? There have been those, even in, and perhaps especially in, the Restoration Movement, who answered, Yes, and what ended up happening was they were rebaptized like 20 times, over 20 times. I forget the guy's name now, but he he had some 20 over 20 times he'd been baptized, rebaptized. That's what happens if we tie the efficacy of baptism to how much we know and our proper understanding of it. On the other hand, though, to answer no to the question, I think that opens the door for things like infant baptism and a sacramental view of baptism, wherein we now control the distribution and administration of all of the blessings and benefits that are conferred on a person through baptism. And I don't think that's right either. So I, I think there's a, a middle ground here that we need to walk in terms of um, uh, the efficacy of baptism and, and those sorts of things. Uh, uh, and those that we encounter and come in contact with, uh, who have been baptized and uh, what has gone on with their baptism as well. So, and again, well, I guess we're all in the same boat here, Alex, that uh, there's a lot to unpack when it comes to the question of baptism. Uh, there's a weeks-long sermon series there, uh, no <laughs> doubt. But um, at any rate, uh, that's what I uh, would say in response to the question um, about uh, judging others, say they're doomed. What do you think, Alex? You know, I like what you said about Acts 17. Um, we should treat people the way Aquila and Priscilla treated Apollos. This is a believer in Jesus Christ. Show them the way more accurately, right? But surely Priscilla and Aquila were filled with grace and charity when they did that. I admit, you know, 10 years ago, if you had asked me this question, uh, I would have said, yes, you need to fully understand why you're being baptized for it to be valid. But you know, that was 10 years ago. Today, I'm content to leave the area more gray when I teach someone about baptism, things of which they did not previously understand, though already baptized. I simply leave the status of their assurance and salvation in their own hands. If they feel confident in their baptism, then I accept it. If they feel a need to be baptized again, then I accept that as well. Although, 
I would not baptize somebody who had already been baptized several times. There's something else going on in that scenario. That's uh, it's, that's not a doctrinal problem going on. There's something else. I, I think emotional, mental going on. But I think I think it is important, as the the listener pointed out in his question, it's important to acknowledge when Christians are living righteous lives, and I don't think God will reject anyone's believing loyalty. Uh, and that believing loyalty can can be seen in those who live righteously, I think. And so it's a sad, I think, revealing of our belief system when doctrinal perfection must equate salvation. May God have mercy on us, sinners, right? Hmm. That's what we need to get back to. That is a sad, sad belief. Doctrinal perfection is not the same as salvation, Okay, here's the next uh, question from our audience. This person says, I believe it's our job to practice and teach truth and not to worry about others who follow Jesus sincerely according to the best of their knowledge, even if it's in misunderstanding or error and they cross-reference John 21, 21. What do you think, Nick? This reminds me of a question that was submitted uh, a while back, uh, which we answered on the episode where we covered Psalm 151. That was episode 91. Um, if you want to go back and, and listen to where we did a question and answer, uh, just one question and answer at the end of that episode. But the, the question was about Luke nine forty nine and this exorcist who was exercising demons in Jesus' name. There's a parallel passage over in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 41, um, where the account is of John pointing to this exorcist, unnamed, we don't know who he was. He was exercising demons in Jesus' name, and John wants Jesus to make the guy stop. Well, Jesus says, the one who is not against us is for us. Now, earlier in this episode, I explained that the restoration movement started as a plea for unity. And uh, what's interesting is that uh, you go back and you look at the unity that uh, Campbell was advocating uh, in comparison with the unity that Stone was advocating uh, they were following different trajectories. Stone emphasized a Christian spirit, as he called it, a Christian spirit, which was rooted in the Holy Spirit, by the way. Uh, and uh, as far as I can tell, it was somewhat of a subjective thing. Whereas Campbell emphasized New Testament standards, many of which Stone fell short of. Uh, and that caused Campbell to actually view his movement as superior to Stone's. And yet, it's now the Stone-Campbell movement. Very interesting. Uh since that time, I lament to say that our movement has devolved into sectarianism in many quarters, and that hurts uh, our, our plea. Uh, if, and, and I guess we can even debate whether or not the restoration plea is even valid as a result of our sectarianism that exists. You know, at, at one point, we were against all isms, and unfortunately, we've fallen prey to the ism of sectarianism. Uh, in our movement. So that's what I have to say. Uh, Alex, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I would agree with the question, which is really not a question, but more of a statement, right? Yeah. Uh, yes, we, our job, we preach and teach the truth. And there is no need to hyper-focus on every Christian that we view as being an error. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a trap. It's such a waste of time. It is never constructive. It's only destructive. 
as you stated, this has created uh, you called sectarianism. Uh, I would say they, it's created a hermeneutic of suspicion in the way we view each other. And I think at least partially, uh, this has uh, led to the crippling of church growth in our tradition. I mean, you can't look at the numbers and be like, oh, we haven't grown in, uh, let's see, 32 years, and now we're shrinking. Hmm, I wonder what that is. Hmm. You know, I, uh, I've heard lectures, and I've been to classes about church growth, and it, you know what it hyper-focuses on? Uh, church leadership. It's just like, hmm, yeah, no, that's not the problem. <laughs> if the answer was, uh, we just got to be better leaders, it's just like, uh, no, I don't think that's, I don't think that's it. So, yeah, don't hyper-focus on everybody else. Next question. You know, uh, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, by the way, um, every time we start a, an episode of the podcast, um, I'm always thinking about how you're in error and I have to correct you when we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the podcast? how the podcast would go if that were the way, right, we, we, we approached it? Which is why I love the podcast, by the way, because, um, you know, we, we do have – uh, mutual love and respect for one another uh, as uh, not just friends, we've been friends for years, but as brothers in Christ. Um, and I'm, I don't think, maybe I'll just speak for myself, I will, uh, I'll make my point, I'll present the argument with uh, uh, all of my knowledge uh, and, and, and passionately but if Alex and I disagree on something, that doesn't automatically resort to me saying, die heretic, and, you know, <laughs> there's the end of the podcast, right? Um, I, we attempt to uh, demonstrate this spirit uh, of understanding, this spirit where uh, there is diversity of uh, opinion, um, and yet there is unity uh, because we, we both want the same thing, and that is for uh, God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to be glorified. And we want people to follow Christ more closely. We want lost people to be saved. Um, and so um, I, I think you're right in terms of uh, the Restoration Movement churches that, in again, in some quarters, not everywhere, I, I am fortunate to be part of a congregation that is, uh, the way I describe it, it is grace-oriented. And therefore, we don't look at others who, as suspect number one. You know, we don't sit and say, well, well my, my salvation's certain, but I don't know about you, right? We, uh, love believes all things. It gives the benefit of the doubt. Um, and so, um, but in those quarters where that sectarian spirit has arisen, I, th I agree wholeheartedly, it has crippled growth uh, substantially. And then, and then you do have this questioning of, well, why? Well, we're standing for truth. Well, yeah, but you're, you're being a jerk about it. And uh, <laughs> uh, you're, giving, you're giving everybody not the right hand of fellowship, but the right fist of, uh, you know, uh, belligerentism or whatever. You know, it's just... Right. Anyway, we've, we've kind of spun out on that one. <laughs> yeah. I did. I did. Well, I, you know, I agree. We have uh, divergent views on things in the podcast, you and I, but uh, I think it's a good example of our continued work that you could call uh, diversified unity. It's like, yeah, you and I hold uh, a diverse opinions on certain topics, uh, 
but it doesn't necessarily mean we're not unified. We are unified in many, many things, especially in our love for our Lord Jesus Christ, and that loyalty is paramount to all other things. And so I don't walk away from our disagreement saying, oh, I wonder if Nick is saved, or oh, I wonder if Nick is on the on the broad road to hell. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, no. It's like, it's like Nick's going to be there in the resurrection with me. And in the resurrection, Jesus is going to tell him that I was right, and it's all going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So we just have to wait. And, and you know we'll, what? Yeah. I will I will bow down before our Lord and say, amen, Lord. That's right. <laughs> Me too. Uh, I'll even let you have the right foot. I'll take the left foot. <laughs> well, uh, we have an interesting question here from the audience member. It's uh, about a Bible translation. Uh, it says, what do you think about the CSB, which is the Christian Standard Bible? I liked it better when it was the HCSB. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it was it first was the Holman Christian Standard Bible, Holman being the publishing outfit that uh, published it. Um, and the reason I liked it better then was because they often, not always, unfortunately, but often translated the Tetragrammaton, the divine name, Yahweh. Well, it shows up as YHWH usually in, in English form, all caps. Yahweh, they translated it as Yahweh when it was clear that the context pointed to the divine name, Yahweh. That's how they translated it. Uh, so I liked it for that <clears throat> uh, back then. However, um, they've backed away from that. And, and even back then, when it was the HCSB, by and large, they still retained the Lord, Lord in all caps, in most other places. Uh, they've I thought that was a step in the right direction. There's another translation out there that is called the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, that's put out by John MacArthur's outfit, the Master Seminary, which is, how do you describe it? It is a translation that's based upon the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, but where the New American Standard 1995 edition got the translation right, they've retained that reading but uh, where there was a better way of translating, uh, the LSB has updated it. And so what has happened is everywhere that the NASB has the Lord, L-O-R-D in caps, they have translated it as Yahweh every place in the Old Testament, every place. I love that. I think that's great. We need the name of Yahweh. Um, now, back to the CSB. Um, they... They, since it's gone from the HCSB to the CSB, they have taken all those references to Yahweh, the divine name, and they have reverted back to simply the Lord, where the Tetragrammaton appears. And I think that's a step in the wrong direction, personally. Now, I will say this. My oldest, uh, who is 11, he uses the CSB. Um, I had one. It's a large print edition. And he's like, Dad, can I have this? I said, by all means. And so that's what he reads from. And so... And I think it's I think it's a decent translation. Uh, Ron Rhodes has a book called The Complete Guide to Bible Translations. He's got a brief chapter on the HCSB in there. Um, and the translation committee, a little bit of background on it, translation committee was made up of 100 scholars from 20 different Protestant denominations, and it aims at what the translators call optimal equivalence. And by the way, this is all in the preface to the CSB, <clears throat> which, by the way, I invite every Listener, every student of the Bible, read the preface of your Bible, please, because that, that's got a lot of information in there about uh, the translation itself. Uh, so optimal equivalence. 
what this is, the, the translator sought to strike a balance between what is called formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. Formal equivalence is a word-for-word -word translation. Think maybe American Standard. Uh, New American Standard to a degree is, is right here with the formal equivalence, word-for-word, -word, trying to stick as close to the text as possible. On the other end of the spectrum, if we can think of it as such, you have the dynamic equivalence, which is a thought for thought. And this is probably where, say, like the NIV would live. Okay. Well, um, this uh, Christian Standard Bible Translation Committee sought a middle road, which they called optimal equivalence, uh, balancing those two, formal equivalence, dynamic equivalence. And what, Ro what Rhodes concludes in that chapter is that um, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, was more literal than the NIV, but it was less literal, and I think maybe more readable, than, say, the New American Standard Bible, and even the English Standard uh, Version, which I prefer. Uh, it has a, if I remember right, like a 7.5 uh, grade point, uh, grade level reading uh, ability, so uh, very readable, and um, uh, at any rate, that's that's what I think about the CSB. I see a lot, well, not a lot. I see a few people uh, in the circles that I run in who are starting to quote from it. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's there, I think. And this is, I think, true for the overwhelming majority of Bible translations. I won't say all translations because, unfortunately, our Jehovah's Witness friends have produced their New World Translation, which is a rewriting of the New Testament in order to eliminate the deity of Christ. But by and large... The, the translation that we utilize, uh, whatever it is, is sufficient to communicate to us the gospel and to get us to heaven. This, by the way, I stand upon the tradition of the original translators of the King James Version way back in 1611. They published a preface to the King James. I don't know if many people have read it. It's called To the Reader. If you haven't, it, by the way, it's long, so buckle up, but... In there, one of the things they say is that even the meanest translation of Scripture is able to make a person wise unto salvation. And what they meant there by meanest was not, you're, you're bad, right? What they meant by even a translation that may not be the best, which they, they looked upon theirs as uh, just building upon the tradition they already had, even though it may not be the best, it is sufficient to make someone wise unto salvation um, in in its translation. So um, that's where I stand with all Bible translations, CSB just being the one that we're discussing uh, currently. But anyway, that's what I think. What do you think, Alex? You know, I have not read the uh, CSB or HCSB, so I'll just, you know, I feel like you answered that out of uh, some good uh, research and experience. Uh, can't comment on it personally. Um I think, you know, kind of like with your son who's reading it right now, it's just like, hey, if it if it gets you more into your Bible, then read it, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and I haven't heard anything concerning as far as like questionable translations within this version, like this is a, a departure from the truth or anything like that. So I kind of feel the same way. It's just like, I, I will read from and read with you uh, any, any translation at all um, because eventually I, I just go back to the to the greek and the hebrew anyway so um it doesn't matter you know you, the tools are there you can dig in no matter what translation you're using so here's a question uh not on the bible but uh one of our listeners said can you recommend any books on marriage so what do you think nick you have any good marriage books 
Yeah, just a few. Um, my personal favorite is This Momentary Marriage by John Piper. I believe he co-authored that with his wife. I can't think of her name off the top of my head. It's short. Mrs. It's just Piper. a little over 100 pages. But it's deep. And it is very biblical. Uh, but uh, This Momentary Marriage uh, by Piper. When I walk couples through premarital and marital counseling, I use Love and Respect by Emerson Egerichs. Uh, I it, it it's a uh, a little long. It's got a lot of what I call commercials, and uh, where it's just saying, "Hey, go over to the website. Hey, you need this, you need that, whatever." But um, it's very practical, very down to earth, and it's faith based. Uh, also, there's a whole love and respect series. There's a love and respect uh, parenting, love and respect your son, your daughter, um, and uh, so there, there's a whole series of love and respect. Uh, the Meaning of Marriage uh, by Tim Keller. Really, really good book. I dug into that one vacation a couple of few years ago. His Needs, Her Needs by uh, Willard F. Harley. Kind of the classic. I used to use that with couples when I would do premarital and marital counseling until I switched to love and respect. Uh, and then, how do I say this? Uh, a book that deals with the erotic aspects of marriage from a Christian perspective is Tim and Beverly LaHaye's the act of marriage, uh, which some have in jest called the act of sex, because <laughs> it is uh, it does get pretty graphic in their description of it. But there's another book um, which is in the same vein. It's called Intended for Pleasure by Ed and Gay Wheat, and it's a, a bit more subtle in discussing the erotic aspects of marriage, uh, as I recall uh, reading that book. But um, Anyway, there's, I don't know, half dozen different books there for you, and hopefully that gets you started in the right direction. Um, I don't know. Well, what do you think, Alex? Uh, can you recommend any books for marriage? You know, uh, Aaron and I have read through, I think, most of the books that you mentioned, um, and we always got something out of each of those books. And I, I know we've read through even, like, several more books than what you mentioned. I just can't remember what they all are. I'd have to go back to the to the bookshelf and see oh, what all what all have we gone through. Uh, there is one book that sticks out, though, above the rest, and uh, it is a bit more secular, right? It's not written from a faith-based perspective, but I did find it much more practical and helpful, uh, and it's called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work by John Gottman, and so that's pretty interesting if you want to pick that up, see how he went about his research and what he suggests. You know, I'm reminded of a documentary called Freakonomics. Did you ever watch that, Nick? Freakonomics? It was a no. book first, but uh, they have a pretty neat like movie that they made out of it. And there's a little clip that you can look up on YouTube about uh, the question of what really makes a good parent. And essentially they said that uh, buying and reading 10 parenting books – doesn't really help you or make you a good parent based only on the content of those books. But because you're the kind of person who would go out and buy and read 10 parenting books, that's what makes you a good parent. And so I would apply the same principle to all of these marriage books. You know, go buy these books, read all these marriage books, not because the books are in and of themselves all that helpful, but because the effort makes you a better spouse and leads to a better marriage. So that's an attribute of the kind of person you want to be as a parent or as a spouse. Well, what are we on? The last question, Nick. Last question. It says, 
I'm deep in your archives, listening to season one. In the episode on Second Peter chapter one, which is episode five, there was reference to the morning star, which is associated with Jesus. In Isaiah 14, 12, though, the same term, morning star, is used in reference to Satan. Can you help me sort out why two beings who could not be more different are given the same title? Nick? Yeah, so episode five, man, that was that was in the days before scripts. We, <clears throat> Alex and I now, we, we have a very scripted approach to this so that we say things in the way that we want to say them. <clears throat> and um, so we... That's actually, we don't have any notes uh, uh, on those uh, early episodes. Uh, uh, for, uh, we started on Second Peter chapter 3 taking notes, and it has evolved since then. So I had to go back. I listened to, the, to that portion of the episode to remember what we said, and most of it was nonsense. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <clears throat> um, and I, I will say this at the front end, too. We, we've... We did a uh, a feature. So in was it season three? We did featured creature, featured creatures at the end of each episode, where we looked at these different uh, creatures that are found throughout uh, the the Bible. And in episode seventy eight, which was on First uh, Peter uh, chapter two, the end of First Peter chapter two, we covered Lucifer, and we talked a lot about um, the, uh, the the term that is used there. In Isaiah 14 and verse 12. Uh, so I would point you to that uh, episode uh, to uh, get a better grasp on on just just that the the, the uh, creature there as we talked about it. Um, but uh, looking back at the texts in question here, it brings into view several ver- verses, not just uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 19, but also Revelation 2 and verse 28, also uh, Revelation 22, verse 16, and of course, Isaiah 14, and verse 12. And just at a glance, there may be a conceptual link, but the terminology is different, uh, which I think is, is important. In other words, it's not the exact same word or words being used to talk about uh, the uh, individuals in view. So uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 19 uh, the term there for morning star, phosphorus, um, it, that's what's called a hapax legomenon. That is, it's a word that's only used one time in the New Testament. Which, by the way, is uh, the same thing that's true for Isaiah 14 and verse 12 uh, as well. It is, it is a term there that is only used one time uh, in the uh, Old Testament. But um, so there's that. We and you can even hear like words like phosphorus, right? Phosphoros. Uh, Revelation two verses twenty eight. Uh, Revelation two twenty eight and also Revelation twenty two sixteen. The the phrase for morning star there. Uh, Tone proion uh, proionon astera. There it is. Is the same in both places. It's different only in case. Um, and then in. Um, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Hebrew Scriptures of Isaiah 14 and verse 12, uh, heosophorus is the term that's used there for dawnbringer, as it's uh, translated in English for us, uh, which is, O day star, son of dawn, uh, is how it reads in my English Standard Version. So the terminology does vary. <clears throat> Different words that are used in each of these places uh, in the Greek. But even if we grant there is a conceptual link I think there are a couple things that uh, 
come to the forefront here. Not the least of which is what happens to the Dawnbringer, the Day Star, um, in Isaiah 14 and verse 12. He ends up being, his light is extinguished, if you will, in verse 15, where he is brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So, uh, again, assuming that this is talking about Satan and uh, his fall, there was a time prior to his fall when Satan was a holy angel full of glorious light. He was a dawnbringer, a day star. And so this lament here in Isaiah 14 is chronicling how this once glorious angel is now a fallen one, and his light, as it were, has gone out. But then also I would say in response, <clears throat> we know from 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's the father of lies, Jesus tells us in John 8, verse 44. And so, uh, yeah, he would, he would masquerade. He would pretend at being the genuine thing, the morning star, but he's not. He's not the real thing. He's not the genuine thing. Christ is the real thing. Christ is the greater thing, even. And so that's what I would say uh, in response. Alex, uh, what do you think? Okay, so I'll start with uh, Jesus. He is the bright morning star, Revelation twenty-two sixteen. But Jesus also promises to give us, the Christian, the morning star, Revelation two twenty-eight. And Peter says the morning star will arise in our hearts, Second Peter one nineteen. I think this all actually ties back into Second Peter chapter one verse four, which says we have the promise to become partakers in the divine nature. We call that theosis, as mentioned in one of the earlier questions. Jesus promises to make us like himself, the morning star. This is the goal of our sanctification, our transformation into the image of Christ, culminating at our resurrection. To quote the early church fathers, and most appropriately uh, today on Epiphany, happy Epiphany, everyone, Jesus came to share in our humanity that we might come to share in his divinity. Star language, quote, star language, is stock biblical terminology, consistent with the ancient Near Eastern context in which the Bible was written for describing divine beings. <clears throat> divine beings. That's why Satan was also described in star language. He is also a divine being, although a fallen one. So our future state, Satan's former state, and Jesus's eternal state may all be described as stars. But that doesn't mean that all the stars are the same. Just like when we recognize looking up in the night sky, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that one star differs in glory from another. So the key to understanding it is that uh, they're not uh, equating something uh, good about Jesus and Satan, calling them both the morning star or even us. It's a description for divinity, divine beings. And so angels, Satan, uh, spiritual beings, they are divine. They're not Yahweh divine. They're not the creator God, the God of gods, the king of kings, but they are divine. That's, that's how they're talked about in the Bible. They're little g-gods. Uh, they're created beings who masquerade as, you know, the gods of the nations. So that's my, that's my take on it. Any other thoughts, Nick? Oh, did we want to circle back to some of these things no. that came up as we were going along? No. <laughs> uh, no, I think 
<clears throat> excuse me we've uh we've answered the uh, questions that have been sent in very good questions we appreciate all of them and we invite more questions uh to uh for our, our listeners to send them in and uh you can send them in via text to area code 316 24 sword 316-247-9673 you can text your question in there or they can email it, right, Alex? Yes, send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, as always, there are some ways you can help the podcast. What are those, Nick? So we are streaming in a number of different places. Uh, you can catch us in uh, Apple Podcast, the OG, Spotify, uh, Google Music, and Amazon Music, uh, those respective places. Uh, leave a review uh, there. Leave the review, and we will read that online, uh, on air. Uh, we will read that uh, because we love getting reviews from our listeners. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars for the review, by the way. <laughs> and uh, feel free to share it on social media, spread it around, get the word out about what we're doing here on Swordplay. That's right. And you know what? Swordplay swag is still on the way. Just give me some more time. I'll get your audience. I'm going to hook you up. Don't worry about it. So thank you for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay. Thanks for sending in those questions. Keep sending in more questions, and we'll see you next time on your double-edged perspective on Scripture.